hello, hello, and here we are again with your April 2019 Worcester Talking Magazine. And guess what? As April starts with April's Fool's Day, the powers that be thought I would be the ideal person to present it. Ha! Thank you, how we laugh. Yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, The music we open with today was the Liberty Bell. It was, as I'm sure... You must all know the theme tune from Monty Python's Flying Circus. Later on, we have more TV and radio themes for you to guess at, what programmes they come from, but that's for later. As always, this rendering is being recorded here in Colin Chance House, deep in the heart of Worcester, and my name is Barry. As you all must know, the Worcester Talking News and magazine are all recorded, processed and sent to you with the help of many volunteers. And I'd like to thank them all, especially Janet Weaver and Carol Hartle. Also Ben Kent, who puts everything we record here and more on the ever-growing Worcester Talking newspaper website. Podcasts too are now also available. And of course, I haven't forgotten our old stalwart Duncan. For 40 years he's trudged here in bright sunshine, ice, fog, monsoon and snow to take his place behind the massive control panel in the soundproof box. That's all his. And by the way, he has the best central heating in there. Sometimes it gets a bit cold in this studio. I think that's done on purpose, so we get on with it. And so we shall. <laughs> Thank you, Duncan, yes. Jokes aside, please let us get on. Uh, Jokes aside, I should say, please give give all the Worcester Talking newspaper and magazine volunteers a big round of applause. And thank you very much all, if you're listening. I hope you are. Right, thank you. Right around the table with me today are two gentlemen and a charming lady, and they are... I'm Alan, here again. I'm Paul, back for another stint. And I'm Kate. Thank you. Uh, Anyone who wants... Oh, yes, sorry. I had something to say there. I don't find it now. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say that we have a, a guest with us tonight who's a, a new volunteer and she's come along to see what happens and how we do it. And I'm sure she's very impressed so far. Um, so you are... Sandra. Thank you very much for coming along. And I hope you all join in a bit later. Thank you. Okay. Welcome. <coughs> right. Uh Oh, I see why I've gone wrong. I've gone over two pages. I think Churchill did that occasionally. Right, sadly tonight we're missing Brian. He has had a knee operation and won't be on his feet again properly until later this month. And I'm sure everybody here would like to send him their best and hope he recovers very quickly and his uh, recovery runs smoothly. Right, next... All of us have a list of events that have happened in April's past. Alan, if you would like to read a couple, then Paul and Kate and so on until we get bored. Uh, Just before we start, here's another theme tune for you to guess at. No, we're going to miss that. Alan, off you go. Now? Yes, now. (laughs) Yes, now. (laughs) First of April. Oh, dear. I'm I'm not going to make any jokes about the editor whatsoever. Thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> 1662, though, 1st of April, British King Charles II grants royal patronage to a group of scientists and academics founding the Royal Society in London. 2nd of April, 
1801, Admiral Horatio Nelson, aboard HMS Elephant, defiantly ignores orders from his commander-in-chief to withdraw his forces and proceeds to sink the professional French the French and Danish fleet of its home port of Copenhagen and that's where we get our Copenhagen Street from and pubs yeah (laughs) 3rd of April 1721 Robert Walpole became the first Prime Minister of Britain and coming a little bit more up to date the 4th of April 1964 the Beatles filled the first five places in the US singles chart with Please Please Me I want to hold your hand, she loves you, twist and shout, and can't buy me love. And on the 5th of April in 1949, the death of Englishman John Winthrop, who was the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Company. On the 6th of April in 1199, Richard I, known as the Lionheart, died from an infected wound while besieging Chalice Castle. On the 7th of April in 1739, travellers throughout England breathed a sigh of relief, safe in the knowledge that the most notorious highwayman, Dick Turpin, had been hanged in York. And on the 8th of April 1838, Brunel's new steamship, the Great Western, left Bristol on a maiden voyage across the Atlantic to Boston. And on the 9th of April um, 1806... Uh, was the birthday of English engineer and inventor Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Perhaps the greatest of the 19th century engineers, he designed railways, bridges, bridges, tunnels, viaducts and ships. And it's also my birthday, but we won't worry about that. (laughs) Or will we? The 10th of April, 1633, bananas never seen before in England went on sale in a London shop. On the 11th of April, 1689, the joint coronation of William III, Prince of Orange and Champion of Protestantism, and his wife, Mary II, took place in London. Now, excuse there's a couple of uh, interesting points. Uh, Robert Walpole um, became the first Prime Minister, but he was actually the first Prime Minister prior to that, the actual um, title of Prime Minister was uh, an insult really because the, uh, on the number 10 door is the Lord, uh, Lord of the Treasury or something like that or, yeah, yeah right. something like that and uh, that, that's what they were called but the, as I say the term Prime Minister was an insult but he was the actual first Prime Minister I think he was Prime Minister for about 20 years mm. and Richard I, the Lionheart he was riding round this castle um, there was no battle or anything going on at the time. Um, it was quiet, and a chap on the on the uh, ramparts fired a crossbow at him, I think, and caught him in the neck. And rather than being grateful, the chap that had the castle put him to death for killing Richard, <laughs> which I thought was a bit unfair. <laughs> anyway, um, on the 12th of April, 1606, the Union flag became the official flag of Britain. And uh, during, in 1912, uh, the Titanic sunk. Um, there, again, there was a lot of um, things in the paper and books written about the Titanic being something special, but it actually wasn't really. It was the second ship in the Olympic class for the White Star Line. And um, the Olympic was the first ship. And when that was launched and went on its maiden voyage, it was huge press for it 
and the Titanic being the second one wasn't really sort of noticed particularly until it sank then it got the headlines <laughs> uh, April 13th 1919 British troops fired into a crowd of 10,000 sheiks that had gathered to protest at the arrest of two Indian Congress party leaders 379 people were killed and 1,200 were wounded in the holy city of Amritsar, India I believe the general that was uh, in charge of the firing um, said afterwards when he was criticised that um, medical assistance was available should they have asked for it <laughs> which I thought was a bit cheeky uh, what else have we got um, uh, 14th of April 1983 the first uh, cordless telephone went on sale in Britain the 15th <laughs> oh, so, uh, two great minds yeah, yeah. Uh, 15th of April uh, 1755 English lexicographer Dr Samuel Donson published his dictionary he had taken nine years to complete it or compile it even uh, 16th of April 1746 Charles Edward Stuart Bonnie Prince Charlie was defeated at the Battle of Culloden Moor in Scotland that's funny because that um, campaign was always known as the 45 and he was actually defeated in 46 rebellion. yeah that's right yeah. And it was 46 when he was defeated perhaps well. it was a long battle <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it probably was I, I, I think it was very unfair I think we were far better armed than the Scots when it went. Uh, anyway there you are Alan um, right, we'll move on to 1969, the 17th of April. The age at which a person is eligible to vote in Britain was lowered from 21 to 18. <coughs> 18th of April, 1775. At the start of the War of American Independence, the US patriot Paul Revere rode from Charleston to Lexington warning people that British troops were advancing. 1775, the 19th of April, the first battle in the War of American Independence took place at Lexington, Massachusetts. 1912, 20th of April, the Irish-born writer Bram Stoker, author of Count Dracula, died at his London home. He was 65. And on the 21st of April in 1509, King Henry VIII became the King of England following the death of his father, Henry VII. He celebrated by getting married a few times. And in 1838, on the 22nd of April, the first steamship to cross the Atlantic, the British ship Sirius, arrived in New York. It made the crossing in 18 days. On that day also, the death of William Shakespeare, playwright and poet, aged 52, and he left behind a wife, Anne, and two daughters, Judith and Susanna, as well as a wealth of literary treasures. And also on the 23rd of April 1616, on the feast day of St George, the patron saint of England. And on the 24th of April 1858, at the second attempt, the biggest bell in the world, Big Ben, was finally ready for hanging in the clock tower of Westminster Palace, London. On the 25th of April 1915, in World War I, over 70,000 Australian, New Zealand and British troops met fierce resistance from Turkish forces as they landed at Gallipoli. 
on the 26th of April 1923, the Duke of York and Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, later later to become King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, were married in Westminster Abbey in London. On the 27th of April 1828, the Zoological Society of London opened a zoological gardens in Regent's Park. Lady visitors were politely requested to refrain from poking the beasts through the bars of the cages. I suppose men were allowed to. Um, on the 28th of April, moving quickly on, in 1770, English naval explorer James Cook arrived at Botany Bay, Australia, the first European to do so. On the 29th of April 1884, Oxford University agreed to admit female students to examinations. However, women are not to be awarded degrees. Right, that's the end of the history lesson. Uh, Here's another music track I'm sure you will all recognise, even if you're not a fan. And if it comes on quickly, and then Alan, after that, um, I think we could have a story from you. was uh, an appropriate piece of music to introduce Alan's next article but this is science fact. Alan. The, um, th- this, is, this is an article about which I know very little. It's about music. <laughs> um, the mixtape we made for E.T. I, I remember him. Um, Chuck Berry Indian Raga, Wales but not the Beatles the riveting new book reveals the Earth sounds rocketed into space. In 1977, NASA launched two space probes to gather data about the solar system's outer planets. It was decided that Voyager 1 and 2 should also carry a message to any aliens who might discover them, telling them something about life on Earth. Astronomer Carl Sagan and his team created two identical 12-inch gold-plated copper discs, the golden record, featuring music, sounds, greetings and images that they thought would give a good impression of humanity. So far, there's been no response from any music-loving starmen. Here are ten fascinating facts from a new book about NASA's extraordinary $865 million space oddity. Well, how do you say hello to an alien? Attempts to get UN delegates to say hello in different languages stalled after the institution insisted on voting on whether to take part, but only after the deadline for the record's delivery. The team ended up getting linguists and students at Cornell University to say the greetings. Some were charmingly bizarre. The Mandarin speaker says... We are thinking about you all. Please visit when you have time. And the Amoy, a Chinese dialect, uh, asks whether the friends of space have eaten yet. Carl Sagan's six-year-old son, Nick, recorded, Hello from the children of planet Earth. Whale greetings were also included alongside the human ones. 
wonder what the ET thought about that. They probably recognised the whales. (laughs) (laughs) What did they say? Hello, (laughs) boyle. Did the earth move for you, dear? The noise of volcanoes, earthquakes and thunder opens the sounds of earth section. It also includes insects and birds, human footsteps, heartbeats and laughter. Team member Androyan had her brainwaves recorded as she reflected on a number of subjects, including the fact that she had fallen in love with the married Sagan, whom she later married. It was thought aliens might be able to interpret or reconstruct her thoughts. Turn up the Bach and Beethoven. The music section of the Golden Record is a 90-minute, 27-track global tour. It opens with the first of three pieces from Bach, the Brandenburg Concerto, and ends with an Indian raga, a sort of a classical improvisation. Bluesman Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, and finally the Cavatina Movement from Beethoven's String Quartet Number no. 13. And Chuck Berry, Johnny B. Good, is included because it represents an unusual nexus in pop music and rock music. Yet the Beatles' Here Comes the Sun was rejected. It's claimed that Northern Songs, which owned the copyright, wanted too much money to use the track. (laughs) We come in peace. Wagner doesn't make the cut because of his ties to Nazi philosophy (laughs) and the conductor... Herbert von Karajan was avoided because he was once a Nazi party member. (laughs) After the probes launched, it was revealed that United Nations Secretary-General Kurt Baldheim, whose voice opens the record, was a former Nazi. And coming up towards the end of this little piece, in a galaxy far, far away, just as NASA was finalising the golden record, Ohio State University's Big Ear Radio Telescope picked up an unexplained radio signal from outer space. The signal has not been detected since and remains a disputed candidate for alien transmissions, although many believe it was a natural phenomenon. Thanks, Alan. Uh, Now, Paul, I believe you have a follow-up story about possible manned journeys to Mars. I do indeed. (coughs) NASA is looking to recruit a class clown to boost morale on future space missions. Research into experiments, expeditions I'm sorry, at the South Pole found that the presence of a joker in the pack greatly increased the chances of success as it helped to bond the team together. The research was conducted by NASA advisor Professor Jeffrey Johnson, whose clown recommendation will feed into the space agency selection process in the future as it puts together teams to fly to Mars and on other missions. Crews going to Mars face extreme physical and psychological pressure on a gruelling two-year round-trip journey in confined space. Groups work best when they have somebody on, somebody who takes on the role of class clown, said Professor Johnson. These are people that have the ability to pull everyone together, bridge gaps when tensions appear, and really boost morale. He said this to a meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, an annual conference in Washington, which always raises a few laughs. We can all think of the person at work who fulfills this role, who makes us laugh and makes the job more enjoyable, and people like being around them. 
When you're living with others in a confined space for a long period of time, such as on a mission to Mars, tensions are likely to fray. And it's vital you have somebody who can help everyone get along so they can do their jobs, get there and back safely. It's mission critical. He added that being funny won't be enough to land somebody the job. They also need to be an excellent scientist and engineer and be able to pass a rigorous training program. As people spend time together, roles begin to emerge, said Professor Johnson. It's pretty universal. It doesn't matter whether you're a Russian, Polish, Chinese, Indian. Group dynamics happen in very similar ways across all human groups. Other roles in a successful group include a good storyteller, a counsellor, an expressive leader and an instrumental leader. An expressive leader is someone who organises expressive events like dinner parties and sporting events, and they can also be referred to as the social director. An instrumental leader, meanwhile, is someone who is looked to for leading works, oriented to, sorry, to leading work-oriented tasks. Professor Johnson spent four summers in Antarctica monitoring team dynamics. We distinguish between positive deviance and negative deviance. These are people who are loving, laughable, and jovial and endearing, and therefore bring people together, but others who are cruel. When I worked at the South Pole Station, there was lots of cruel behaviour, he said. And just as a footnote, <clears throat> a gentleman called Lyle Guy Laliberté, a Canadian billionaire who founded the Cirque du Soleil, he became the first clown in space in 2006 when he went on the International Space Station bearing red noses for the astronauts, which, after last month's fun, that's quite topical. Yeah. I think the idea of um, people going in space that are good at dinner parties and things like that are ideal for space capsules. <laughs> go down very well. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway... Um, Anyone that wants to volunteer, I'm sure the details are on the internet. Would anyone here like to go to Mars? Would you like to go to Mars, anybody? No, I don't eat chocolate. <laughs> oh, no, funny. I'm on a diet. Yeah, no. no, I think everyone here will agree that uh, any job you, you need a healthy brain. Our ex nurse, oh no, well, I was going to say, our, yes, any, anyone that takes that job will need a healthy brain. And our ex nurse, Kate has some useful tips on how to keep that important organ functioning properly, even into old age. Kate. Right. The best foods for boosting your brain. This is interesting. Um, it's uh, uh, an excellent place to start. Our exploration of how our food affects our health is the brain. It's home to trillions of synapses, the junctions between the nerve cells, carrying electrical messages that control all our thoughts and actions. This was written by a doctor because it says as a doctor, which I'm not, I regularly witness the terrible aftermath of brain conditions such as dementia and strokes. Very worrying to all of us, I think. Dementia is now the second leading cause of death in the UK and cases are rising. Many people assume that this is a natural part of ageing and a consequence of us living for longer. But there is evidence to the contrary. Studies have shown that our brains are susceptible to damage caused by a Western diet, high in sugar, refined carbohydrate, processed foods and salt, which give off waste products that cause inflammation in the brain. This is damaging to the blood-brain barrier, a protective layer surrounding the central nervous system that is integral to the health of your brain. 
Scientific research suggests a Mediterranean diet rich in polyphenols, that's plant chemicals in colourful fruit and veg, can reduce the incidence of vascular disease that contributes to a poor brain health. It protects against diabetes, known to put sufferers at a higher risk of depression and dementia. Studies also show it can slow the development of dementia as well as improve some of its symptoms. Improvement in mental clarity and mood are also linked with this diet. So here are some of the key ingredients to perhaps look out for if you're, if you're wanting to get a healthy brain. Greens. Vital ingredient for a healthy diet. These include um, cavolo nero, spinach, rocket and sprouts. All containing lots of polytone, poly, oh, sorry, phytonutrients, which are compounded produced by the plants that have been shown by research to dramatically reduce inflammation. This is a key cause of disruption to brain processes, as can and can lead to fatigue and low mood. So, if you want to be happy, eat some sprouts. Omega-3 rich fats. These are found in oily fish such as salmon and mackerel, as well as nuts, seeds and extra virgin olive oil. Long-chain omega-3 fatty acids are of particular interest. Research shows they can help promote the growth of brain cells, helping the brain to adapt or rebuild damaged connections. Another benefit of nuts, seeds and oily fish is the quality protein they provide. This breaks down into amino acids, the building blocks of proteins that are used to create new neurotransmitters, the chemical messengers of the brain that are created when your brain sends signals. And berries, they're well known for their brain protective powers. They're rich sources of polyphenols, beneficial compounds including the anti-inflammatories resveratrol and quercetin. Berries may also be involved in the production of a compound called brain-derived neurotropic factor that studies show could be a critical component in protecting the brain against disease and also in enhancing our ability to learn and solve problems. Alan, I believe you've got a story that you've split into two for the first half and the second half. Yes. um, I've been a lifelong cyclist and... um, I came across the history of the Worcester St John's Cycling Club the other day. It's, it's rather long and of course it's very interesting to cyclists but perhaps not to our wider listeners. So I've cut this down a little piece but um, let, let's start with the very early days. The first cycling club in Worcester was the Worcester Bicycle Club founded in 1877 followed in the next few years by the Worcester Tricycle Club, 1881, the YMCA Club, 1884, and the Royal Worcester Porcelain Club, 1887. Now, the Worcester Bicycle Club purchased a piece of ground in Hilton Road between Tybridge Street and the railway embankment and laid a racing track 350 yards long and 3 yards wide on which competitions were regularly held in the 1870s. The St John's Cycle Club was founded in 1888 and other clubs were formed in Worcester in the next decade but only the St John's Club, which in a few years changed its name to Worcester St John's CC, has survived. It is today one of the oldest clubs in the country and its survival was due to the enthusiasm of such men as T.W. Badgery, a founder member, 
and its first captain, and H.H. Brittlebank. The club's oldest trophy, the President's Cup, was donated in 1888 by the first president, Mr. George Williams, who was proprietor of the Barrows Worcestershire Journal, and he's also a tricyclist. This trophy is one of the oldest ones in the country. Now, on the first club run over the old hills into South Worcestershire, there was a dozen tricycles and twice as many high wheelers were led by George Williamson. Within a year or so, all club members were riding safety bicycles with pneumatic tyres. Now, the St John's has always been a racing club, unlike some others, and its most distinguished racing cyclist of early years was Ernie Payne. He became a member in 1903. Now, among many track victories, including several national championships, he won an Olympic gold medal in the team pursuit in the London Olympics of 1908. In his spare time, he played football for Worcester City and had two matches with Manchester United as an amateur. Now, the period just before the First World War saw the end of many cycling clubs as the fashion for cycling as a social and sporting activity was dropped by the middle classes who had been the first supporters of the sport. The war itself laid waste to a generation of young men and many clubs didn't survive. Indeed, Worcester St John's suspended its activities until 1922 when Brittlebank and Dindley called a meeting to restart the club and met with an enthusiastic response. Mr Arthur Isaac, president in 1914, had been killed in the war and the Earl Beecham accepted the invitation and remained president until his death in 1938 when his son assumed the office. Now, one of the club's characters of these years was a chap called Bert Perry who ran a cycle shop in St John's. His eccentricity reached its peak in 1936 when he was arrested on the way to London. He had a wooden rifle and said he was going to assassinate the Prince of Wales. He spent a few days in Gloucester jail. Why? Well, the plume of feathers was Bert's trademark and he'd been upset by the abdication. Now, the club's activities continued throughout the Second World War. At least one track meet was held on Worcester County Cricket Ground. In 1944, after being resisted for many years, women members were admitted to the St John's Club. Uh, well, they didn't have crossbars. <laughs> uh, no, they didn't. <laughs> In the same year, the club's Open 25 was inaugurated, attracting top riders such as Basil Francis, the 1945 national champion, Cyril Cartwright, Stan Higginson, Tour de France rider Bob Maitland, Competition record holder Dave Keeler, Gordon Ian, and Norman Powell. In the immediate post-war period, the St John's attracted many fine racing cyclists as members, including Derek Farmer, Bobby Lloyd, Doug Dring, Max Sinclair, Mike Bailey, Dave Sparry, Mike Earp, Bob Jones, and the Minovi brothers, Macken and Raymond. They competed both in time trials and road races. Uh, one point that I noticed, Alan Norwood's Hetchins racing cycle cost him £41 and a penny. In those days, that would have been quite expensive. 
Road racing had taken off in England following the establishment of the British League of Racing Cyclists in the early 50s. Raymond Minovi rode as an international and in the 1964 Tour of Britain. Eric Austin, still around, I see him up the road occasionally, later an international marathon runner, competed for the club in open events. The emergence of the BLRC threatened to split the sport with younger riders challenging the old brigade who were opposed to must-start racing. The fear was that all competitive cycling on open roads would be banned. In those days, time trialling was conducted under rules of secrecy with, rule, with riders dressed in black and courses were kept secret. Indeed, until 1962, result sheets were marked secret and confidential. We'll carry on in the next half. Okay. Um, we've just got a few minutes before we're going to take a break. So um, the BBC um, took a poll recently to find out what people thought were the best radio programmes of all times. So, okay, which was the best, which was number one? Anyone got any clues on which was the best radio programme from dot to now? Any the ideas? Ar- the Archers. Archers was, in fact, second. Ah, Desert Island playtime. Discs. Huh? Desert, uh, Desert Island Discs. Yes, you're right. Well, well done. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well done indeed. That's our new volunteer, folks, for the first <laughs> time on, on air. <laughs> and round, uh, number three, any ideas? Workers Playtime. This is, this is a comedy one from it, about it, it, 20... Itmar? No, 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 not that far back, not this one. Um, a bald-headed chap. Yeah. Oh, Kenneth round the hall. Yep, exactly. And um, fourth, the Navy Lark. No, 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 no. It's around the same period of time. Razor, razor laugh. Eh? The Goon Show. No, it wasn't that. No, uh, Hancock's off. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> Either that, or you've got a very old radio. <laughs> 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 no, no the, the next one was a very serious programme that was on between 1982 and th- 2001, and it was serious. Um, think something, think Mastermind, and what's the... Any questions? The, no, no, think Mastermind, oh, and what's the round, star of Mastermind? Round. What's the star of Mastermind? The chair, and this is in the... In the psychiatrist's chair. Oh, really? Yeah, that that was in fact fifth. Uh, The next one, the next one is one of my all-time favourites. I I really like it, and it's been going on since 1977, and it's still going. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Uh, Very similar, very similar, but it's topical. The news quiz. (laughs) Good job we're not scoring this. You'd be well ahead. What's the time? Yeah, we've got time for a couple more. Um, oh, yeah, this one's good, um, which uh, I think um, Kate Aidy was frequently in. Well, very From often. our own correspondent? Yeah, exactly, yes. Ten points. <laughs> and uh, number eight, uh, Peter, uh, Peter Jones um, narrated the book. Hitchhiker's Guide. Again, again. Gosh. <laughs> Do you listen to the radio a lot? <laughs> <laughs> a bit. <laughs> uh, number nine. Uh, you just mentioned this one as a comedy one. Well, I'm sorry, I haven't clue. Yeah, that's it. And yeah. uh, number ten. Uh, 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 again, 1957 to uh, present. Very topical. 
and we're sitting in it today. Today, that was number ten. It's not. It's mainly Radio Four, aren't they? So yes. uh, good yes. old Radio Four. I listen to nothing else. <laughs> really? Anyway, well, dead until, on until, the, two. until this nonsense that begins with a B, which I won't dare say the word, until this got so popular, I used to listen to Radio Four all the time. Yeah, I've retuned to Radio Two now because I'm just absolutely desperate about the state of the country. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> you, know, you can't actually. You can't listen to anything now, can you? For more than don't half say, an hour. Don't say the word. I'm not going to say the word. No. <laughs> Anyway, we're going to take a break, and you won't notice because it does carry on as far as you're concerned, but it won't for us. Welcome back, although you didn't know we'd gone. Um, This is where everybody takes on a different persona because we come to the tale that's never been told before. It's about the brave traveller, explorer, Alan Livingstone, a distant relative of the famous Dr Livingstone, who, as we all know, travelled to Africa in 1840 and was the first man to see... and name of the Victoria Falls. Alan, 
who's from Worcester, a brave and resourceful man too, also decided he was going to explore the world of the unknown. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, and uh, today, listeners of the Worcester Talking magazine, we have a surprise for you. A scoop. Yes. As you've just heard, Alan Livingstone is here with me tonight with two of his co-explorers to tell us about their adventures. Alan, would you like to say hello to our listeners and please introduce your colleagues? Yes. Hello, Barry. And it's Dr. Alan Livingstone, by the way. Oh, I'm so sorry, Doctor. It's perfectly okay. It's just better to get things right from the start, don't you think? And thank you for such a splendid and, by the way, well-deserved introduction. Yes, uh, thank you, Dr. Alan. And your colleagues? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With me I have Dr. Paul Columbus, Cambridge lecturer and historian. Good evening. And Kate Edmondson, make up the trio. Good evening. Thank you, Alan, for the introductions. Or should I just say doctor? Just a minute there. Just hold on, if you would. I've been, if we're being so pedantic about titles, I'm a doctor too. And, Alan, I'd like to remind you, I've been published far more times than you. Yeah, you might have been, Kate, but my works are far superior. In your dreams, Doctor, they're full of plagiarism, with not an original idea in any of them. Uh, yes, well, um, uh, hello to you all, and welcome to the Worcester Talking... And I've got an OBE for my work. What have you got, Doctor? A blue Peter badge? Uh, look, hold on there just a minute. Can we, uh, please, all oh, just settle down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Barry, you'd never believe they're married, would you? <laughs> and what a mistake that was, the pompous ass misogynist. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, thank you, please. Uh, now, I'm pleased to say, as this interview is not going out live, we can edit. Duncan behind the glass there is a genius for cutting things out. So what's just happened can be erased. Erased. So now, I think the first bit was all right. Yes, Duncan's uh, nodding. So let's start from here. And please, can we all be friends? Of course. Mm. Of course. Mm. course. Yeah, well, thank you all. Uh, So from here, uh, let's start. Three, two, one, action. So, Dr. Livingstone, or can I just call you Alan? I'm sorry for being informal. Uh, Very well, then. Oh, good. Uh, Thank you so so much, Alan. Uh, Okay. I believe your expedition to see how the strange and forgotten people of our world live started about a year ago. Uh, yes, it did. And I see with you, you have a copy of the book you've written since returning, describing your adventures. Yes, I have. Yes, in fact, I wrote most of it while we were away, of course. I just dotted the I's and crossed the T's on returning to Worcester. And can you tell us, for instance, what the book is called? Yes, It's called Language and Culture of a Different World. I wanted the book to reveal to the reader what it was like for us to trudge through the outback of a strange land we visited and the different type of people we met there. And so, Alan, Paul, Kate, I believe tonight here for the Worcester Talking magazine you are going, and this is for the first time, ladies and gentlemen, to tell us where your expedition took you. Yes, Barry, we are. So, Alan, 
Where did your expedition take you? What dark continent did you visit? Well, um, <clears throat> would you like to tell him, Paul? <laughs> no, I don't think so, Alan. It was your expedition. You really should take the credit. Kate, I'm sure you would like to enlighten the listeners on where we went. As Paul said, it's you that must take the glory, Alan. It is, after all, what you deserve, husband dear. Oh, come on, please. One of you, someone must tell our listeners where you went. Alan, where did you go? Oh, very well. If you insist. Yes, come on now. If you want, if you, if I know you really want to tell me, really want to tell, really want to tell me. Come on, Alan. Yeah, well, mm, yeah, mm, mm, all right. Well, yes. Yeah. Mm. Come on. Well, we went to Hereford. Hereford? You went to explore Hereford? Oh, no, no, we didn't mean just to explore Hereford. <laughs> let, let, let me explain, if our gallant leader doesn't want to. We were going to follow in the footsteps of Alan's distant relative, David Livingston, to Africa. Everything was packed, tickets booked, visas in order, inoculations, etc., However, on the way to Southampton, Alan wants to visit his old aunt in Hereford. She owns a luxury spa there, so unfortunately... Please don't drag this out any longer, both of you. It's all so embarrassing. While we visited Alan's aunt in Hereford, our 4x4 and trailer, with all our clothes and equipment on it, was stolen. So we missed the boat and ended up staying at Alan's aunt's spa for the year <laughs> yes it's true alan was so embarrassed he didn't want to come back to worcester he instead it said we explored herefordshire while staying at this wonderful spa he's a bit of an old eccentric you know plus we had all the grant money we'd been given for our exploration yes you can imagine being forced to live for a year in a luxurious spa was it awful no it was wonderful my skin's never felt better so, uh, Alan, you spent the whole year exploring Hereford from your aunt's spa. Yes, and it was well worth it, wasn't you, you two? We gathered a wealth of information, hitherto unknown, about these strange people on the other side of the Malvern Hills. Oh, no, it wasn't. What is the man saying? Oh, come on, Paul, Kate. Over a year, we found out an awful lot about the local tribes beyond the Malvern Hills, the way they talk, the way they live... Once you cross those hills, everything is quite different. So, Alan, your book, Language and Culture of a Different World, is about the people in Hereford. Herefordshire, to be precise, Barry, and the inhabitants of that county are known as Herefordians. OK, then. Can you give me some examples of what's so different about the people from Herefordshire? Language, for example... Well, where to start? That is the question. I'm sure you'll find something. You always do, you pompous ass. <laughs> that chap in there behind the glass. Um, Duncan, did you say? Well, ask him to cut that last remark of my wife's out, if you would please. Uh, right, here, do that. So, uh, please, can we carry on? <laughs> uh, now, Barry, you asked me about the differences in the language used in Hereford. Well, there are many examples. We became fascinated by the intonation, pronunciation and use of words and expressions <coughs> which were so different from those we use here in Worcester. Uh, <coughs> can I stop you just there for a minute? Thank God for that, otherwise he'd go on forever. Ah. Uh, uh, yes, I know, Alan. Uh, Duncan will cut that out as well, don't worry. <laughs> 
humour, Alan. That's what Barry's <laughs> listeners want. Humour, spelt F-U-N. Let's just read some of the entertaining stories we heard while we were there. Very well then, dear wife. Or is it Dr. Wife? You start. I will. This is a story a teacher told me. She was having trouble getting her pupils to understand pronouns. She had explained that they are used with verbs and had given them examples like I am, you are and she is. She then asked a Hannah, a bright child in her class, to give her an example starting with the pronoun I. Hannah thought for a while and eventually said I is. No, 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 the teacher shouted in frustration. It's not I is, it's I am. Now, Hannah, please try again. Hannah took a deep breath, giving the teacher a cheeky look and said, I am the ninth letter of the alphabet. (laughs) Paul, you heard some funny stories too while we were over there. Yes. I I used to like going to the races in Hereford and I got to make friends with a trainer. And this is a story that he told me. He said, I was giving the jockey his instructions while I was trying at the same time to give the horse a treat. If you know what I mean, (laughs) nudge, nudge. Unfortunately, I hadn't seen the steward nearby. He he came over and asked me, what was that you gave to the horse? I said casually, oh, just a sweetie. And I put one in my mouth to prove it. said, here, would you like to try one? Unfortunately, the steward said, thank you popped it into his mouth so i carried on with the jockey's instructions and i said just keep on the rails and you're a dead cert to win the only thing that could possibly pass you on the home straight now is either the steward or me (laughs) alan what about you you must have a story too um yes i have um i think paul and i better do this one together remember paul the one about the farmer from hereford who had to fly to germany You ready? Oh, yes. Good. Goes like this. The farmer was sitting next to a German businessman, quite happily reading his paper, when the German tapped him on the shoulder and, in good English, asked, Would you like to play a fun game? "Um, Not really, replied the farmer suspiciously. Oh, come on. I know. To make it interesting, I'll ask you a question. If you get it right, I will give you five euros. And if you get it wrong, you give me five euros. Then you ask me a question, and if I get it wrong, I will give you 100 euros. But if I get it right, you still only have to give me five euros, okay? Um, yeah, if you say so. Good, then I will start. This is a nice easy one for you. What is the speed of light? Well... It's not the speed this plane is travelling. If it was, we wouldn't be playing this stupid game. So, uh, he reached in his pocket and gave the German five euros. Now, it is your turn to ask me a question. And I must tell you that I am a quiz champion. Oh, are you? You didn't mention that before. OK. Here's my question, smartass. What goes up a hill with three legs and comes down with four? On hearing this, the German looked perplexed, shaking his head. I must think about this. What goes up a hill with three legs and comes down with four? The German thought for so long, I managed to go to sleep. Just before the plane landed, 
The German woke me up and said, <clears throat> I give up. You have beaten me. Here is your 100 euros. But tell me, what is the answer? What does go up a hill with three legs and comes down with four? Um, is that your question? Yes, I want to know. Well, I'm afraid it's a question I can't answer either. Here, take your five euros. <laughs> and with that, the plane touched down. <laughs> OK, one more then. Uh, we can go on to something else. Kate, one more from you. OK. OK, Paul, will you do this one with me? Of course. Thank you. Here we go. A lady who is a dedicated Hereford United fan told me this. She was sitting in the packed Edgar Street Stadium and the only vacant seat was next to her. A man from behind asked, Who does that seat belong to? Oh, my husband normally sits there. So why is he not here today for this great game? I'm afraid he's dead. He was killed in a tragic accident. Oh, I see. That's awful. So out of respect for him, you kept his seat vacant? Oh, no. I said any of our friends could use it if they wanted to. So... Why didn't any of them come today? Oh, none of them wanted to come today. They've gone to his funeral. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, that's the end of that. Come, all come back to our normal personas. And the German, I like the German accent. It's very good. Very good. Yeah, it's very good. Um, Alan, you've got uh, a funny story? Yes, th this, this one was sent to me. <clears throat> and I read it and I really laughed out loud. I thought it was so funny and wicked um, it might possibly cause offence but all I'm going to say is that this happened in real life on the radio in Australia Major General Peter Cosgrove served in the Australian Armed Forces <coughs> he deserves another medal especially taking on some antsy biased dimwit like this interviewer Major General Peter Cosgrove is a pure Australian treasure. He was interviewed on the radio recently. This is his reply to the lady who interviewed him concerning guns and children. Regardless of how you feel about gun laws, you've got to love this. This is one of the best comeback lines of all time. It's a portion of an ABC radio interview between a female broadcaster and General Cosgrove who was about to sponsor a Boy Scout troop visiting his military headquarters. <clears throat> the female interviewer said, So, General Cosgrove, what things are you going to teach these young boys when they visit your base? The general said, We're going to teach them climbing, canoeing, archery and shooting. And the female interviewer said, Shooting? That's a bit irresponsible, isn't it? General said, I don't see why. They'll be properly supervised on the rifle range. Female interviewer said, Don't you admit that this is a terribly dangerous activity to be teaching children? General Cosgrove said, I don't see how. We'll be teaching them proper rifle discipline before they even touch a firearm. The interviewer carried on, but you're equipping them to become violent killers. General Cosgrove replied, Well, ma'am, you're equipped to be a prostitute, but you're not one, are you? The radio cast went silent for 46 seconds 
and when he returned, the interview was over. <laughs> well, um, Paul, I believe you've got a story from the dim and distant past that has a rather a hot ending. <clears throat> yes, in light of all the LGBT plus activity. This article is entitled The King and I, Gay Lovers and Their Grisly Ends. The role of the royal mistress, or maîtresse son titre, was once an important and esteemed position at court. Whereas infidelity is a PR disaster for any modern monarchy, throughout history kings were not only expected to take a mistress, but those who didn't were regarded with suspicion. Queens, though, were expected to remain either virginal or monogamous. And such was the pressure for a king to have a mistress that Frederick I of Prussia, who reigned in the middle 1600s, who was deeply in love with his wife, appointed Katharina von Wartenberg to the role for 15 years, and he showered her with titles and jewels, but never had sex with her. Regal infidelity was considered one of the perks of being a king, but the mistress was expected to be beautiful, aristocratic, educated, and above all, female which is why when Edward II, in 1284, attempted to treat his male lovers in the manner befitting a mistress, things did not end well. Perhaps one of the most debated menage a trois in British royal history is the one between Edward, his young Queen Isabella of France, and a nobleman, Piers Gaveston. We've no way of confirming if the relationship between the king and Gaveston was sexual, and some historians view it as being nothing more than an intense platonic affection. But the outrage surrounding their relationship, the humiliation expressed by the Queen and her family, as well as the corroborating accounts from the time that the two men loved each other beyond a measure and reason, strongly suggest that they were lovers. Gaveston first appears in the then Prince Edward's household accounts in 1300, when Edward was 15 and Gaveston not much older. By 1306, Edward I had banished Gaveston to France, and when the king died in 1307, the two were reunited, whereupon Edward II made Gaveston Earl of Cornwall. As King Edward II had to marry in order to secure succession in 1308, he wed Isabella, an alliance that should have consolidated his power base. But he infuriated his council by leaving Gaveston in charge of the kingdom while he was in France getting married, and outraged Isabella's family by ignoring his new bride upon their return. Eventually, Edward performed his marital duties, and in 1312, the future Edward III was born. But the influence Gaveston held over the king was enormous, leading one chronicler to note that there were two kings reigning in the one kingdom. In 1311, Parliament petitioned the king to abandon Gaveston as his counsellor. Under pressure, the king agreed, and Gaveston fled to France. <clears throat> When, England, when Edward recalled Gaveston to York, the northern earls attacked, forcing the king, Gaveston, and a heavily pregnant Isabella to flee. The earls trapped Gaveston in Scarborough, and after a brief siege, he was captured and executed as a traitor on the 19th of June, 1312. The king was distraught and swore his revenge. But by 1318, his new favourite, a chap called Hugh Despenser, the younger, was being showered with gifts and titles, wielding considerable influence and being referred to as the second king. Dispenser made an enemy of Queen Isabella by removing her children and placing them in his own wife's care. 
Isabella aligned herself with Roger Mortimer, a powerful English baron, and in 1326 led an uprising against Despenser. The annals of Newnham Abbey recorded that the king and his husband fled to Wales, where they were captured. Edward was forced to abdicate in favour of his son and then imprisoned in Berkeley Castle. Despenser was hanged, drawn and quartered. Although imprisoned, Edward presented too much of a threat to the new regime and was assassinated at Berkeley in 1327. His sexuality had cost him dearly. The cause of death was never made official, but rumours abounded that he'd been murdered by a red-hot poker inserted into his <coughs> anus. Historians have never accepted this version of events, but instead suggest the story was one final act of slander about Edward's sexuality. <laughs> Thank you. I believe he wasn't a very good uh, leader of troops either, because he lost Bannockburn, didn't he, in Well, I'll have to take your word for it, Barry, because I wasn't there. Oh, aren't you? Oh, good Lord. And you said you're older than me, and I was. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, Kate, you've brought a story along, so uh, let's uh, hear it. This is a bit more up to date. This is a little bit about the internet. Um, and it was written by uh, Mark Radcliffe, who you may have heard on Radio 2 uh, Folk Show, um, which I think is an evening programme, one day a week, one evening a week. Um He's talking about the internet because it's uh, recently celebrated its 30th anniversary, uh, I think in March. Yes, it's 30 years since Sir Tim Berners-Lee got cracking with his hypertext transfer protocol so that you can order new socks on your phone to be delivered to your door within 24 hours. This is Mark talking, not me. My two youngest daughters, aged 20 and 16, can scarcely, can scarcely conceive that the internet hasn't always been there. Rather, as I view my grandparents' world as a monochrome place with milk being delivered by horse and cart, my own progeny looking at me with a blend of sympathy and incomprehension when they try to understand that for the first 40 years of my life, I did not possess a handheld device to book concert tickets or holidays and make purchases. It is as if we were discussing a period in history between the wars, say, when they learnt that the telephone was a piece of equipment that was used only in the house and was shared by everyone. In fact, when I was growing up in Bolton, we had a phone on a party line shared with our next-door neighbour. Often you would pick up the receiver only to discover Mrs Whittle discussing her bunions at some length. Frustrating when I'd been waiting for six, at six o'clock when the cost of calls dropped to whisper sweet nothings to Zoe Thompson. Clearly, it is marvellous that all of us now have access in an instance to pretty much everything we would ever need to know or own at the mere click of a button. I'm not one of those people who think that time spent online curbs the inquiring mind. With a world of information available, it seems to me that the thought processes engaged in making sense of it all will be, fe will be fed and nurtured. Of course, the Internet has unleashed many things we'd be better off without such as trolling, bigotry, extremism and pornography, though these have always been available in whichever way we disseminated information at the time. But I do find it frustrating that my kids are unable to go anywhere, even from room to room, without their eyes fixed on their smartphones. I've been thinking about how this could be tackled and the solution. I've come up with harks back to a simpler world of my grandparents. All shops in those days had half-day closing. 
In Worcester, it was Thursdays, and you couldn't buy anything after midday. This resulted in a delicious, calm setting on the normally bustling town streets. So what about there being half-day closing on the internet? No one would be glued to their screen because it would be blank. Just imagine that. Best equipped to perform this miracle? I'd like to think Tim Berners-Lee has something about this in the internet's instruction manual. What do you think? <laughs> oh, was that it? Thank you, thank you. Um, right, um, this is... Has anyone seen the film about Queen Anne? What's it called? We, Kate and I went to see it together. Oh, The Favourite. The Favourite, that's right, yeah, The Favourite. And in it, she seems to have lesbian affairs, but... Um, Good God, yeah. Well, after after Henry, <laughs> Edward, I mean, you tell us, you know, hello. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, she was a bit unlucky, Queen Anne. Uh, Queen Anne, whose statue is above the entrance to the Guild Hall, was the most unfortunate woman. She bore at least 17 children. Now, how they can <laughs> say that film? Um, all of whom died, unfortunately, at birth. Or in childhood. Her reign was one of firsts and last. She became the first sovereign of Great Britain when England and Scotland united in 1707, uh, the last one to touch for the king's evil and the last to refuse to sign an act of parliament. Now, the king's evil, I didn't know what that was, so I looked it up, and Sandra, I believe you're going to tell us what the king's evil was. In the Middle Ages, it was believed in England and France that a touch from royalty could heal skin disease known as scrofula, or the king's evil. Scrofula was usually a swelling of the lymph nodes in the neck caused by tuberculosis. The practice began with King Edward the Confessor in England, 1003-4 to 1066, and Philip I, 1052-1108, in France. Subsequent English and French kings were thought to have inherited this royal touch, which was supposed to show that their right to rule was God-given. In grand ceremonies, kings touched hundreds of people afflicted by scrofula. They received special gold coins called touch pieces, which they often treated as amulets. By the late 1400s, it was believed that you could also be cured by touching a type of coin called an angel, which had been touched by the monarch. After angels ceased to be minted in the 1620s, the same effect was said to be achieved by touching a gold medallion embossed much like the old coin. Some monarchs touched many people. King Henry IV of France touched up to 1,500 victims at one time. The last English monarch to carry out this practice was Queen Anne, who died in 1714, but it continued in France. Louis XV touched more than 2,000 scrofula victims, and the last French monarch to do this was Charles X in 1825. Thank you very much. That's from our new volunteer, and hopefully she will stay after tonight. <laughs> now I know why I've never contracted it. <laughs> why? I want to shook hands with the Queen. Oh, that's it. <laughs> when I think about it, she had her gloves on. <laughs> oh, it's still. I better go and see the doctor in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Among the many travellers who uh, crisscrossed the count the country and reported on their journeys in centuries past, some included Worcester on their tours. Celia Fiennes arrived 
just in time to witness the election of 1698. This daughter of a Cromwellian colonel seemed to enjoy the faithful city, uh, complimenting it on its uh, broad streets and lofty buildings. Her contemporary, Daniel Defoe, was less impressed, complaining that Worcester buildings were crowded together and its atmosphere too antique. Alan, tell us more about Daniel Defoe's report. Well, I wasn't with him, of course, when he made this visit. (laughs) He reported that Worcester is a large, populous, old, though not a very well-built city. I say not well built because the town is close and old, the houses standing too thick. The north part of the town is more extended and also better built. There is a good old stone bridge over the Severn which stands exceedingly high from the surface of the water. But as the stream of the Severn is contracted here by the buildings on either side, there is evident occasion sometimes for the height of the bridge, the waters rising to an incredible height, in the winter time, it narrowly escaped burning, but did not escape plundering at the time when the Scots army, commanded by King Charles II in person, was attacked here by Cromwell's forces. Twas said some of the royalist officers themselves proposed setting the city on fire when they saw it was impossible to avoid a defeat, that they might better make a retreat, which they proposed to do over the Severn and so to march into Wales. But that the king, a prince from his youth, of a generous and merciful disposition, would by no means consent to it. I went to see the townhouse, which afforded nothing worthy nothing worthy taking of notice, unless it be how much he wants to be mended with a new one, which the city, they say, is not so much inclined as they are able and rich to perform. I saw nothing of public notice there, but the three figures, for they can hardly be called statues, of King Charles I, King Charles II and Queen Anne. The cathedral of this city is ancient and indeed a decayed building. The body of the church is very mean in its aspect, nor did I see the least ornament about it. The tower is low without any spire, only very four very small pinnacles on the corners, and yet the tower has some little beauty in it, more than the church itself too, and the upper part has some images in it, but decayed by time. The inside of the church has several very ancient monuments in it, particularly some royal ones, as that of King John, who lies interred between two sainted bishops, namely St Oswald and St Wollstone. Whether he ordered his interment in that manner, believing that they should help him up at the last call and be serviceable to him for his salvation, I know not. It is true they say so, but I can hardly think the king himself so ignorant, whatever the people might be in those days of superstition. Nor will I say, but that it may be probable, that they may all three go together at last, and yet, without being assistant too, or acquainted with one another at all. Here is also a monument to that famous Countess of Salisbury, who, dancing before, or with King Edward III, in his great hall at Windsor, dropped her garter, 
which the king taking up, honoured it so much as to make the denominating ensign of his new order of knighthood, which has grown so famous and is called the most noble order of the garter. What honour, or that any honour redounds to that most noble order, from it being so derived from the garter, for it is generally agreed she was the king's mistress. I will not inquire. Certainly the order receives a just claim to the title of most noble, for the honour done it by its royal institution, and it being composed of such a noble list of the kings and princes as they have entered into it. I say, certainly this order has just title to that of noble, and most noble too. Yet I cannot but think that the king might have found out a better trophy to have fixed it upon than the lady's garter. But this, by the way, here lies the lady that's certain and a very fine monument she has, in which one thing is more ridiculous than all that went before. That about the monument there are several angels cut in stone, strewing garters over the tomb, as if that passage, which at best has something a little obscene in it, I mean of the king's taking up the lady's garter and giving such honours to it, was also a thing to be celebrated by angels in perpetuum re memoriam. Besides this, here is the monument of the body of Prince Arthur, eldest son to King Henry VII, who was married but died soon after, and his wife Catherine, Infanta of Spain, was afterwards married too, and after twenty years wedlock divorced from King Henry VIII. Upon the prince's tombstone is this inscription. Here lies the body of Prince Arthur, the eldest son of King Henry VII, who died at Ludlow in the year 1502 and in the 17th year of his father's reign. There are other ancient monuments in this church, too many to be set down here. They reckon up 99 bishops of this diocese, beginning at the year 980, out of which catalogue they tell us have been furnished to the world one Pope, four saints, seven high chancellors of England, eleven archbishops, two lord treasurers of England, one chancellor to the Queen, one lord president of Wales and one vice president. Thank you, Alan. I'm sorry that was so hard to read. I know it's, it's old English, isn't it? And uh, there's some lovely information in there. Well, when I was at school, we commonly conversed in this. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Did you meet Daniel Defoe? <laughs> a fine man, a gentleman. <laughs> and what, what, I mean, he wrote that, but he wrote um, Robinson Crusoe as well, he did. didn't he? So, um, you know, he obviously could write in English. <laughs> anyway, um, actually, I was, there's another thing here. Um, Celia uh, Fines, I think it's pronounced, um, who also visited, who's the uh, daughter of the uh, Cromwellian colonel, she wrote about Worcester as well. But it was so, you just can't read it. It was I was going to give it to you for oh, a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like that um, one about the witch. Do you remember that one I sent you to see if you could do it? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> you just yeah. can't read those sort of things, can yeah. you? They're impossible. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's go on to about someone else from Worcester. William Laslett was born in Worcester in 1801. He became a barrister and the city's member of parliament. Laslett was eccentric, difficult, and apparently a miserly. 
His eccentricity extended to his appearance. He walked around looking like a scarecrow. Yet this strange man gave away large sums of money and married the bishop's daughter. He also purchased the city jail, intending to create homes for the poor citizens. Lazlet Almshouse is now in Union Street that now occupy the site. Uh, you've got more about him, I believe, Paul. Yes, he was <coughs> quite an odd person. Lazlet was a notable citizen and a member of Parliament. He bestowed upon Worcester large benefactions, larger benefactions than any who preceded or followed him so far. But he was a man of strange contradictions, who frequently marred his gifts by the manner of the giving, and his own day was better known for his eccentricity than his benevolence. Nevertheless, he had generous impulses, even if somewhat ungracious ways. He was a Worcester solicitor in the 19th century, that golden period of the legal profession when many fair-sized family fortunes were made locally, with offices at 50 Fourgate Street. And in 1843, another notable man, Thomas Southall, he, I think he had a school named after him, didn't he? He was articled to him, and to whom Lazlet gave £100 to start up a practice. The circumstances of Lazlet's marriage to Maria Carr, the daughter of the Bishop of Worcester, reads like the plot of a high Victorian melodrama. Bishop Carr had died owing £100,000, and the sheriff's officer seized his body, and not until a month later, when assurances were forthcoming, was the body released for burial. And it was Lazlet who put up the money. It was said at Abberton, where Lazlet lived, the price was in return for the hand of the late bishop's daughter Maria. The marriage lasted for six unhappy years and proved a matter of notoriety. Thomas Southall, who knew them both, said the fault was not all on one side. Maria openly showed her dislike and contempt for Lazlet, and in return his behaviour was at times abominable. The story is told that when Maria was ill, Lazlet would not allow fires to be lit in her room, though the weather was cold and the doctor remonstrated with him, saying she must have a fire, whereupon Lazlet told the servant to light the fire, but when it was lit, told the gardener to cut a large piece of turf, and then ordered him to get a ladder and place it on top of the chimney. Lazlet did not study physical, did not study physical necessities much, and appearances not at all. He walked the streets of Worcester in a top hat, and clothes that a ragman would not want. A party of singers called at Abberton Hall and found the place very untidy, with flagstones broken and Lasslet stripped to the waist digging a saw pit, rather than pay the two shillings and sixpence a day which the workmen wanted. He used to boast that his journey to London and back as Worcester's MP, beside his fare, cost only three old pence. He had breakfast before he started and would indulge in a penny bun and a glass of ale. A Worcester tradesman once invited Lazlet to have a glass of ale with him at Paddington, and the member for Worcester accepted, then boasted that his journey that day had cost him only one penny. In the political field he experienced the sweetness of victory and the bitterness of defeat. He was returned as a Liberal in 1852, but in 1874 Lazlet had the mortification of being bottom of the poll, having 500 fewer than his Liberal college, Rowley Hill, and he never offered himself as a candidate again. He bought the city jail in Friar Street in 1867. There was strong bidding for it, and Laslett protested, You ought not to bid against me. I am buying for the good of the poor. 
he paid £2,250 and then adapted the cells to accommodate old married couples. At first, the residents had no allowance, but lived rent-free. But in 1875, he conveyed to the trustees an estate in Herefordshire to provide allowances for them. So he may have been an oddball, but he was extremely generous. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks. Right, um, Alan's going to finish off, but just before he does, um, we're going to have another piece of music that you can guess what it is, and I'm sure you all will. Let's see what it is. Coming up any second now. Your second part of your cycling story. Yes. Alan's specialist subject. Yes, it is. It is, <laughs> it is actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, bringing it up to date. Um, the first club's open road race for the News and Times Challenge Cup was held in 1957 and became one of the country's leading and toughest events, with Ankerdine Hill included on a four lap course. In the 60s, the club had several fine time trial riders, including Mick Morris, who was the first club member to ride under two hours in a 50-mile event, and Bob Short, who sadly died in 2003 of cancer, began his long service to the club and cycling in general. I knew Bob, quite a character. He was in 19... When was it? 1966... Bob was getting ready to ride in the Coventry CC 12-hour event and he left Worcester at one o'clock in the morning to ride the 50 miles to the start. He rode the 12-hour event doing something like 200 miles, I would think. He had to be restrained from riding back to Worcester after the event. <laughs> Bob was always ready to marshal in open events promoted by other clubs in the district and to help long-distance record attempts passing through Worcester. 1975 saw a low point in the club's fortunes, 
with very few riders complete, competing in club events. But Ian Fagan, a successful professional rider in the 80s, joined, and along with John Patston, Roger Bevan, Nick Yarworth, won the Divisional Pursuit Championship and were fourth in the National Championship in 1980. The club championship was dominated throughout the decade by Don Rigby, with competition at shorter distances from Nobby Clark, McMahon, Paul Watkins, Rick Allen, Sam Barden, Nathan Priest, and Ross Gilfillan. 1982 saw the first club rider to compete in a 24-hour event, when Roger Almer completed 385 miles in the National Championship in Hampshire. In 84, the Worcester St John's team of Alma, Gilfillan and Ashman won the team event in the Mersey Roads 24-hour and Ross set a new club record of 436 miles in 10th place in the 1986 National Championship. Now, in 1981, Kane Theakston joined the club as a junior and immediately showed the talent that led to a short but brilliant professional cycling career with international successes riding for the British team. Joining a Portuguese racing team, he showed great ability as a climber and stage race rider. But a series of crashes frustrated his attempts to win several major races, but he was finally successful in winning the Tour of Portugal in 1988. Uh, He was the only British rider to do that. The 1980s saw the emergence of fine time trialling talent among the ladies too, with Penny Marne winning the 85 National Juniors uh, Championship. Noel Wilson won the 84 World Cycling Association 50. Now the last decade of the 20th century saw the Worcester St John's flourishing and among the outstanding riders, many members recall the abilities and fine character of Alistair Hooper, who, despite losing the use of an arm in a motorcycling accident, won both club and open events, including hilly time trials. He was tragically killed in an accident in Kemsey in 1992, unfortunately. In club events, the names of Treadwell, Staines, Walker, Priest and Southard feature as regular winners, with Sam Barden showing his skills in the Low Gear 20 event. Jonathan Dias incidentally spent several years racing on the continent, riding as a professional, with an impressive list of successive successes in one-day events and stage races. Often our better riders joined sponsored racing clubs in search of the best competition and also support. However, many of them continue their association with the club, turning up regularly to compete in club events so that local riders could match themselves against some of the best in the country. Now, in concluding this abridged version of the St John Cycling Club, I'm going to ask you to recall the details of their first club run in the 1880s. A dozen tricycles and 20 or so high-wheelers or penny farthings as they became known. In this century, Evergreen Dave Priest rode his penny farthing from Land's End to John O'Groats. A fitting tribute to the good old days. Well done, Dave. Sooner you than me. Thank you. Um, 
we've got a couple of minutes left, so um, I've got some, some questions that uh, was going to be for the quiz, but we seem to have got so many stories that um, uh, we haven't got much time for it. <laughs> so anyway, here is... A, well, I beg your pardon. No, it's not anybody's fault. It's, um, you know, it's just uh, Duncan doesn't give us enough time. <laughs> anyway, this is um, one of the questions... Um, in which Kate <laughs> in which state can you find the Grand Canyon? Obviously US state. That's in um, Arizona. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Don't look so surprised. I didn't even know it was lost. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, in which year was Barack Obama first elected president of the United States? 2008. Well done, well done indeed. Uh, what nationality was Vincent van Gogh? Dutch. Dutch. Belgian. No, it was Dutch. Was it? They, they said it before. <laughs> well, they might have been wrong. Well, he could have been, but they weren't. <laughs> uh, Sandra hasn't got a question wrong all the evening. No, no, she's. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a, <laughs> Yeah, okay. Uh, which city is the home to the Wailing Wall? Babylon. Oh, <laughs> Tel Aviv. No, no, it's Jericho, G- isn't it? G- <laughs> oh, come it's on. Jerusalem. Thank you very much. Which fruit is also known as the love apple? Love apple. Tomato. I'm going to make a wild guess, the tomato. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. What? What is the collective noun for a group of flamingos? A pink? (laughs) No? It's quite... It's expressive. A flounce. Well, a flamboyance. Oh, right. (laughs) Lovely. A flamboyance of flamingos. It's nice. It's good, isn't it? Which planet is closest to the sun? There's an easy one. That's us, isn't it? Isn't that us? Earth? You're having a laugh, aren't you? <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I thought you'd have been not been serious. It's Mercury. Really? You've got Mercury, Venus, then us. Oh, I I never look up. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the uh, second wife of King Henry VIII? Oh, oh. Harrigan was the first, so presumably it was Anne Bowen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Divorced, beheaded, etc. Died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Only just as well. She nearly got the chop. Uh, which composer wrote the music for The Nutcracker? Tchaikovsky. It was indeed. In which book by Ian Fleming did James Bond first appear? Oh, gosh. Is that uh, Casino, Casino Royale? Royale? Yeah, 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 yeah. And what else have we got here? We got that oh yeah, this is dead easy. To finish on, which author created Miss Marple? In, in, Agatha, um, Christie. Agatha Christie. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, you nearly slipped up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, that's it. I think that's it, isn't it, Duncan? Yes, we seem to have run out of time. Something to, to read here. Huh? Got just something to read. Oh yeah, look, Kate. Uh, Kate wants to finish off with something. This is appertaining to the strange weather we've just been experiencing, from sunshine to gusty winds and all the rest. A philosophy, a philosophy for contentment and thankfulness. Sunshine is beautiful, rain is refreshing, 
Winds are bracing. Snow is exhilarating. There is no such thing as bad weather, only different kinds of good weather. <laughs> right, I'd like to thank you all. Alan, Paul, Sandra, Kate. I'd like to say thank you very much and good night. And this is where the music doesn't start straight away and I look a fool again. <laughs> Turn on the volume. The volume's up.